Muddy News Media. This news just in, listeners. The Athletic is extending its £1 a month offer for all new subscribers, meaning you can get unrivaled analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, plus a brand new breaking news service and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts for just a quid. This deal won't last forever, though, so don't miss out. Sign up today at theathletic.com slash totally. Totally Football Show. Today, Champions League. Man United, Paris Saint-Germain. Marcus Rashford against a group that's lavished ludicrous sums of state money on a few individuals but lacks a real sense of the collective. Nope, doesn't sound familiar to me either. Anyway, we round up all the big midweek news, including Real Madrid's shocker, the Shakhtar, and look ahead to the weekend's action from Man United, Chelsea to the Classico. It's all coming up in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello, future person. This is the sound of Thursday morning, October the 22nd, and in particular, 2020, uh, our pals, Duncan Alexander of Opta Joe. Hello, James. Lovely to hear from you, Duncan. And also football writers Tom Williams and Jack Lang. Hi. Hello, James. Hi, James. Hello. Hello. Everyone well? Very well. Full of the joys of the return of the Champions League. Yes. Well, big, big midweek of action. Plenty to enjoy. Not so much for you, Duncan, because your Wickham Wanderers were uh, on the field and losing your sixth game of six so far in the championship. Yeah, um, although we did out XG the other team for the first time. So for me, that is a sort of victory. Um, And Reading, right? Reading are top of the championship, but yet they've Mm. had fewer shots than any other team in the championship. So, I mean, for me, we're the real winners. Brackets, yeah, we're, we're not. Marathon, not a sprint, and all that. Uh, but the rest of us were busy watching the Champions League, and there was much to enjoy. Uh, not least, Real Madrid losing. <laughs> uh, Q says, how did Shakhtar manage that, especially with so many COVID cases? Can't remember a Spanish side going down at home like that for a long time. It was a little bit like the Bruges game. Do you remember when Real Madrid went down 2-0 in the first half last season in the group stage to Bruges? Uh, but then came back, uh, equalising Casemiro in the 85th minute. This time they tried something similar in the second half, but didn't. And Shakhtar, who turned out without seven starters, went away with a 3-2 win. Jack, we'll hear from Alvaro later, because big week this for Real Madrid with uh, Barcelona on the way. But what was your take on this? I thought it was a fantastic match. It had a bit of a weird feel to it in general, not not just because Shakhtar were missing so many players, but because it was, it was not at the Bernabeu, it was at the Alfredo de Stefano, which was obviously pretty small ground. Real Madrid missing players as well. But I think, yeah, like you said, it's not just that Shakhtar were missing 10 players. It's that they were missing most of their key players. You know, think of Tyson, Junior Moraes is their main goal scorer. Ismaili, Stepanenko, like just a lot of really talented players, kind of pretty much the core of their team. And so for them to play the way they did, I thought they were really slick. Uh, Real Madrid, I thought, just didn't know what really happened. I think Alvaro will probably explain it later, but there, there was just such a lack of intensity from them and Shakhtar's kind of passing and transitions just tore them apart. It was great. Mm. No Sergio Ramos. and in, in, Intriguingly, that's now four Champions League games in a row that they've played without Ramos that Real Madrid 
have lost. They also had uh, Benzema and Tony Cruz and Isco, one or two others on the bench to begin with. Benzema certainly rested ahead of the Clasico, a decision that perhaps came back to haunt uh, Zinedine Zidane. As you say, Alvaro may explain more fully later on. So many other stories, though. Man United with the win again in Paris. Victories for City and Liverpool too. City getting a clean sheet. Champions Bayern, Tom. Picking up more or less where they left off a couple of months ago, smashing another big side from La Liga, Atletico Madrid, 4-0. Yeah, Bayern confirming their status as most people's tournament favourites, I think. Uh, enjoyed seeing Kingsley Coman uh, back in action after his winner in the final against PSG. Two really nicely taken goals, particularly the second one, where he sort of runs on his own from halfway, cuts inside, cuts outside, sticks it bottom left. Um, also enjoyed seeing Mathieu Valbuena come back to mm. haunt Marseille by setting up a stoppage time winner for Olympiacos in their opener. In Man City's group, of course. Shakhtar aside, the biggest story was probably what happened Tuesday at the Parc des Princes with Man United winning again at PSG. You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Pogba. Oh, Rashford! Oh, Rashford! Il refond le coup! Tom, I imagine there's been a bit of reaction to this in France. Yes, there has been. Um, Unrecognisable was the uh, headline uh, on the front of L'Equipe yesterday, which said that PSG had been overwhelmed and lifeless. Criticism both of uh, the players, um, of Thomas Tuchel's tactics, as Jack remarked on Twitter, uh, remarkably, PSG's approach to these to these big games still appears to be give the ball to Neymar and hope for the best. Um, but there have, there's, there's also been a few questions about PSG's recruitment in that we know they lost a lot of really important first-team players over the summer, Thiago Silva, Thomas Meunier, Edinson Cavani, a few others, and that the feeling is they've not really replaced them. Um, but yeah, I thought PSG were dreadful. Uh, and we're, we're two years now into Thomas Tuchel's tenure uh, with three years into Neymar and Mbappe being there. Yes, they reached the Champions League final last season. And I do think they they sort of put some ghosts to rest in doing that. Um, but at the same time, given the, the players at their disposal, it is remarkable that there's still such little identity to the way they play. Um, in, the, in the first 10 minutes, there were a couple of occasions where Neymar got the ball and slowed to a, a complete stop allowed all the defenders, uh, all the Man United defenders to get into position. Um, and Mbappe was doing similar things. And it, it just spoke to me of, of players who who aren't part of a collective, um, who, you know, are sort of, I don't know, kind of have this curious, slightly arrogant mindset of thinking that, you know, they can do it all on their own. Um, but the reason they they end up feeling like that and playing like that is because that's exactly the way the team plays. That's exactly what Tuchel asks of them. It's not, this is how we're going to break this team down. These are the these are the combinations. This is the sort of football we're going to play. It really is, well, we'll try and put you in decent positions, guys, and then it's up to you. And once again, um, it hasn't worked. But isn't that... Uh slightly caused by the fact that they can do that in the league most weeks and, and get away with it and then it's always been a bit of a I mean I think one of the reasons they they played better in the in the final stages of the Champions League last season was because it was like a mini tournament where they had to be up for it you know game after game and uh, and that obviously made a difference but you know I wouldn't say 
they weren't great, but you know, De Gea still had to make five saves in that game. He did kind of, you know, United kind of rolled back the years in the sense of it was a, it was a bit of a medley of of what they've done since Ferguson retired. You know, quite good on the counter attack. De Gea having a a good game, and if you get those two things in combination, um, you know, they they tend to pull off a pretty good result. For me. The, the the thing with PSG is just the degradation of the midfield. Like go back four or five years and they've got Thiago Mota, Verratti and, you know, Rabio or Matuidi. That's such a good midfield, such an underrated midfield, I think, in European terms. And those players, you know, Mota and Verratti especially, would just weave these patterns, almost kind of hypnotise teams into them and like slip through with three or four really clever passes. That just doesn't happen now. And uh, I think it's quite telling that one of their most solid, reliable midfielders over the past two seasons has been Marquinhos, who's had to move forward, you know, who's also, in theory, now their best centre-back as well. Uh, so, yeah, just the the recruitment and the complete failure to replace Mota and, and now Rabiot, I think, is uh, fairly damning for them. For all of that, though, before the game kicked off, when people looked at the team sheets, it wasn't PSG's midfield that looked a little bit under strength. You had Fred and McTominay uh, ready to take on the, the French champions. And... Behind them, this makeshift back line up against two of the most dangerous attackers in the world, it, it, it really wasn't supposed to turn out this way. No, but I mean, Carl's been banging the drum as for Fred and McTominay as a, as a functional midfield. And I think when they had that good spell towards the end of, um, or before the lockdown kicked in in January, February this year, that was the kind of base it was built on. So obviously, uh, Bruno just came in and, and Pogba was injured. Um, you know, and, and obviously Ollie's at the wheel, but if you want to be at the wheel, you need a reliable Axel. And I think United have finally found that, haven't they? Um, because he, you know, Axel Twanzebe was, was, was brilliant. And, you know, if he can stay fit, he could finally, finally be the answer. Um, so he hadn't played, ways. he hadn't played any competitive football since the League Cup last December, almost a year ago, and comes in, and, in into this game. And ha- how well did he do? He was fantastic, and he's what United have have lacked. And there's been a lot of talk about the need for a quick centre back partner for Harry Maguire, someone in particular who's good in one on ones. Uh, and we saw that repeatedly, particularly that that um, challenge where Mbappe tried to nick the ball past him, and he sped past and sort of eased him off the ball and and turned and, and played it up the pitch. Um, and that that did feel like a shortcoming in United's summer recruitment that they didn't sign someone alongside Maguire capable of doing that. Perhaps it was because the plan all along was to bring in Axwell Twanzebe, but he certainly looks capable of giving United something in that part of the pitch that they don't currently have from anyone else. The back three, I thought, also really suited uh, Victor Lindelof. I thought he had his best game for a long time, looked, looked a lot uh, more assured with that extra presence around him and also Luke Shaw I thought was a was a very uh, good performer left centre-back probably takes away from some of his attacking deficiencies nowadays you know I think he's he's comfortable on the ball and he's actually uh, defensively not bad but when he plays left back I think his his lack of penetration is shown up and Alex Tellers came in I mean like you say, it was yeah, it was a bit makeshift all around on paper, but it really did work. And mm. yeah, Tellers's delivery was fantastic, and a better performance than the the last victory away in Paris three three one yeah. back in March twenty nineteen. Definitely, yeah. I would, I mean, just on that, you know, PSG since they came back to the Champions League after you know getting some money in the early twenty tens, um, they've only lost four home games in the Champions League. Once to Barcelona when they had Neymar. Barcelona did, um, once to Real Madrid and then twice to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. So 
the only thing is it does feel like in the way that some like cyclists will have certain climbs that they like and other people don't and vice versa I think managers can have certain opponents that, that bring out the best in them and I think the way PSG set up and the way that United are allowed to always counter-attack away in Paris is always going to suit this team so mm. you'd have thought that Tuca would have been aware of that and, and maybe tried to respond to it in some fashion pressure on him then as Solskjaer presumably with this fine managerial performance easing the question marks over his suitability for the Man United role is that right Duncan well he's still third favorite to uh, be sacked first in the Premier League this season seriously Who, who's yeah. ahead of him uh, Scott Parker and Billich which would always seem a bit harsh when you brought a team up but um mm. but yeah I think we've seen this before we've seen really good United performances occasionally over the last few years um and it's building that momentum from them that that's been the problem um you know they've obviously got a big game this weekend in the Premier League if they can win that as well I think that really could be the start of something but yeah we'll see I mean this is the Solskjaer paradox isn't it that United have consistently produced these sorts of performances and secured these sorts of results against top-level opposition since Solskjaer came in, but at the same time have also turned in some absolutely abject performances against weaker teams. And, and Solskjaer has showed that he's very good at setting United up to counter-attack uh, against uh, comparably strong opposition, um, and that should suit them well uh, against Chelsea on Saturday, because Chelsea are a team who like to attack, who like to have the ball, who attack in slightly cavalier fashion and who leave absolutely acres of space in behind their defence. So you wouldn't be surprised to see United pull off another result there. But equally, if they were then to go and lose to, I don't know, whoever they've got next, you know, Fulham, Burnley, whoever, take your pick, that wouldn't be a surprise either. And I think when United fans who are pro-Solskjaer get annoyed at people for questioning his credentials. It's not because um, there's there's anything that isn't impressive about going away and winning at PSG or, or beating City or Chelsea or Liverpool. Of course, that's impressive. It's that the very best managers these days find ways of enabling their teams to beat everyone. And Solskjaer still hasn't done that. And that's why the jury is still out and will remain out until he manages to do that on a consistent basis. Well, as you say, Chelsea coming up. Man United hosting RB Leipzig on Tuesday in their next group game. Leipzig, who saw Turkish champions Basaksehir here 2 0 on Tuesday. We'll have a look at Chelsea and the Old Traffic matchup that awaits on Saturday after this. At Paddy Power, we know competition for the remote control can be fierce at the weekends. So, in order to give the non-football-loving occupants of your house something to do, here are some of our top suggestions. Go for a walk. Walk the dog. Walk to the shops. Go cycling. Cycle the dog. Recycle the dog. Just go! All very good options, we say. And that's not the only one. If one leg of your 4-plus-fold acker lets you down, get a free bet on all football leagues and all markets. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, min odds 1 to 5 on each leg on an exclusive exclude shop bets, T's and C's apply, 18 plus begambleaware.org. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Right then, Saturday sees Chelsea make their way to Old Trafford fresh from a 0-0 at home in the Champions League to Europa League champions, Sevilla. Is this a good result for Frank Lampard and his very expensive side, given that it involves a clean sheet? I think probably yeah. I think it's fine. I don't. I think he was keen to to spin it that way after the match, as were as were some of his players. I think certainly the clean sheet is is probably a a relief more than anything. The way Edouard Mendy played in goal, I think, will have been uh, a boost. And I would 
expect this to be now the moment where he he seizes that shirt once and for all. But it didn't look like a, a massively impressive all-round performance. I think there's a lot to be said for for tightening up at the back. But if it comes at the expense of of your you know threat at the other end, then I guess you're kind of pulling the duvet up to cover your face. cover your neck, but leaving your feet exposed. What, your face. Which, I, I wouldn't would you... pull up to co- I wouldn't pull up to cover my face, really? Duncan. Yeah, that's. I would. I do that quite. Unless a lot. you got a, if you got a cold face. Perfect. <laughs> sense. Duncan, you're very tall. I bet you have issues with your. I've got no issue at all with my feet being cold and, and hanging at the end. That's fine. But all right, what, what issues do you have with Chelsea's performance, or do you no, think it's fine that they got a nil-nil draw? Well, I think it was. Year? I think it was really important. You know, it was after all the goals they've been shipping. You know, this was Lampard's first ever nil-nil as Chelsea manager. Um, wow. I think he'll. You know, the, there was total xG in the whole game was 0.59, which is less than a than a penalty by itself. So. Yeah, it was noticeable the fullbacks were were deeper, and you know Sevilla are pretty much the team that can get the better of any Premier League team at will. So I think a draw at home to them is a is a pretty solid start, and it's also the classic Chelsea Champions League approach. I've never watched Chelsea in the group stage, and ba- I can't even remember them winning a game in the group stage. Yet they always finish first. It's just like just skip to the end, so it's fine. Right. Well, they certainly lost their opening fixture uh, last season at home to a Spanish side, Valencia. In that case. The other game in the group, Group E, uh, Rennes, were held 1-1 in France in their debut in this competition against another new side for the Champions League, Krasnodar. In front of quite a lot of fans. Yeah, there were. There were 5,000, I think. Yeah. yeah. It was a, a nice, raucous atmosphere at the Razon. Uh, anyway, uh, as we mentioned, Saturday at 5.30, Man United taking on Chelsea. Solskjaer against Lampard in the DNA derby. They met four times last season. United winning both league encounters and a League Cup match. Chelsea, arguably the biggest win of the four, though, because they, they took the FA Cup semi-final. Uh, United at home, and this touches on this kind of counter-attacking business, yet to take a point this season. Defeats to Palace and Spurs. Yeah, they haven't lost three at home in the league in a row since Antiques Roadshow started being shown. Um, and on that note, will Petr Cech be on the, uh, be on the bench? But... Right. So, okay, um, we should mention it. This was the announcement on Tuesday of the teams of the Premier League sides finalised 25-man squads for the competition. I don't remember this much fuss about it last season. Perhaps I'm just being forgetful, but there were huge stories all over the place, not least the fact that Petr Cech, who retired in 2019, is back among the goalkeepers in Chelsea's squad. Just when keeper Ariz Balaga thought it couldn't get any worse, he's now fourth choice Chelsea goalkeeper behind a 47 year old man who retired five years ago. Right. He's not that old. He didn't And not only that, ago, but he's now playing for the Guildford Phoenix. I don't know how they feel about this. They... <laughs> Fuming, I imagine. Decent swap, yeah. if you ask me. Yeah. Um, in United's 25 man squad, there was no room for another keeper, Sergio Romero, poor chat, or Phil Jones. Didn't they just give Phil Jones a new contract? Yes. Yes, right. they did. I actually feel more sorry for Romero, who mm. has proved over the last few years that he's one of the best second-choice goalkeepers in mm. the Premier League um, and now isn't even in the Premier League squad. And I think his, was it his, his partner was quite mm. critical of the way he's been uh, managed uh, on one of her social media accounts. And you can't really blame them, really. Well, it's a very sliding. It's a very sliding doors moment because he wanted to go to Everton, and if he'd have right. gone to Everton, would Virgil Van Dijk now still be functional? Crikey! Duncan can't stop flip reversing. It's all, it's all he does. 
My life is a continuous flip reverse. Right. Um, just just out of interest, what happens to these players now for the for the rest of the season or until the January transfer window? They're, they're, they're unable to take the field in anything but the League Cup and FA Cup, I guess, are they? Yeah, I think they have to move into that big uh, place in Kent where all the Brexit trucks are going to wait for the next few months. They're just start, like, in, in a storage unit. Right, and, and, and along with Romero and, and, and others there, uh, there'll be Meza Ozil, perhaps most controversially. This, it's so depressing, this. Regardless of, of what you think about Ozil's work ethic or his, you know, the the stuff to do with the the wage reduction, just just in a broad strokes way, imagine imagine telling someone five or six years ago that, that Meza Ozil at this point in time would be not even in Arsenal's squad. I mean, this is one of the best players of his generation, one of the most creative players I think I've ever seen. And, you know, just to see someone like that when he should be kind of overflowing with joy in the Champions League is is really depressing. And I, I wish we could just skip ahead to, you know, the inevitable Indian summer, I think. Get him somewhere like Marseille, get him to River Plate, get him to, I don't know, <laughs> Napoli and just, you know, have two or three seasons of... Uh, Slightly doomed, but very enjoyable through balls. I don't want to reopen the whole Ozil debate because it is a big one. But does this does this make sense for you in football terms that Arsenal are going to have no need for Ozil between now and whenever he gets sold on? No, it doesn't make any sense, particularly when you look at the profiles of some of the players they were going after in the transfer window. Obviously, they were very strongly linked with Husam Awa, and I can completely understand that because he's a wonderful player. But if you have addressed um, creativity in central areas as a problem maybe before shelling out 50 million pounds that you don't have on a new player you could give that German guy who won the World Cup once and has just been sort of knocking around the place looking sad for about 18 months a run out just to see whether he might be able to do anything it doesn't make any sense to me to just completely bomb him out of the squad Um, and as Jack says it's just it's just very sad um, that we're not going to see him, that he's not going to get to play. Uh, and yeah, you sort of wonder where this, you know, how this will be resolved because at some point he's going to have to leave. Um, but yeah, just a, a pity that he's that he's not going to be playing at all. Let, let's cheer things up then by saying that with the release of the full squads, there was a timely reminder that Kurt Zuma's middle name is Happy. Happy Zuma, uh, unlike that New Yorker journalist. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we were talking about uh, Man United's clash with Chelsea. So, Chelsea beginning to maybe concentrate on tightening things up at the back, are they? Man United struggling at home so far. What's your take on what's going to happen tea time Saturday? Duncan? <laughs> I honestly don't know. It's that Anything could happen. Um, my hunch is that, that Chelsea will somehow get the better of United. I just feel that um, they've got enough quality up front to... To cause United defensive issues, and I think United will have that that kind of home barrier a little bit again. But then I could equally, you know, United could be so buoyed by that win on Tuesday and Marcus Rashford's general uh, goodness that they could easily go and beat Chelsea. So yeah, sorry, I'm gonna gonna sit. Could on the go fence. either way. All right. Well, Monday morning we'll be here with what does actually take place at Old Trafford. After this. Let's move on to Liverpool, Man City and Saturday's other matches. 
This is football like never before. This is Sports Broker, the new real money gaming app. At Sports Broker, buy and sell virtual shares in the world's biggest teams and be at the heart of the football action. Buy teams low, sell them high and own the game with Sports Broker. Join now at sportsbroker.com or download on the App Store and Google Play. Sports Broker, own the game. Always play responsibly, over 18s only. You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Man City 3-1 winners in the Champions League Wednesday night over Porto. They went behind to a terrific goal from Luis Diaz, but looked pretty comfortable by the final whistle. They will be taking on Saturday lunchtime West Ham at the London Stadium. Liverpool, meanwhile, went all the way to Amsterdam and got their first win of October. Not only that, but despite the absence of St Virgil of defending, they got a clean sheet. Good Lord. They're going to be hosting Sheffield United. Uh, That's 8 o'clock on Saturday on the PPV. Crikey. Do you want to talk about Liverpool, Fabinho's performance there, centre-half? Whisper it quietly, but Fabinho and Joe Gomez could be the best central defensive partnership I've ever seen. Um, Crikey. Liverpool, in the the four games that um, Fabinho's played centre-half in the Premier League and Champions League, they haven't let a goal in. Um, And Gomez looked back to his kind of anticipatory best uh, 11 recoveries four interceptions you know he's had a bit of a up and down 2020 since since lockdown but um yeah he looked really good so maybe the problems are, are not as bad as they seem the one problem with Fabinho playing at center back um and I agree that he is a ready-made replacement for, for Van Dijk in many ways is that you then need to replace him in central midfield and whereas Liverpool have got all sorts of different options in the two um, sort of more attacking central midfield positions. There are very, very few options in the midfield holding role. And um, at the start of the season, you kind of assumed that the first choice midfield would be Fabinho sitting with probably Henderson and Thiago either side of him. Now, if Fabinho is playing centre-back, you have to find someone else to hold that role. And Thiago can play there, but is obviously a completely different sort of footballer um, Mm. who interprets that position in a very different way. Anyone else is going to be a slightly round peg in a square hole. Um, so I think that that could be an unfortunate consequence. And, you know, people have questioned whether it, it might have been advisable for Liverpool to bring in another centre-back just to, you know, mitigate against the risk of, of one of their other centre-backs being injured. Um, but, yeah, in terms of a, a replacement, Fabinho was, was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the other end of the pitch, I thought Diogo Jota looked fantastic when he came on and, and I think showed why... He was such a clever signing because he would probably walk into most Premier League teams, Jota, and he's being brought in at Liverpool to provide competition and backup to the front three. Um, and yeah, it was, was great for Portugal in the most recent international break. And I think he showed last night just what he can bring to Liverpool and, and how useful it'll be to have that option on the bench. It was an interesting moment that an hour in when a pretty furious looking Jurgen Klopp Liverpool had taken the lead, somewhat fortuitously through an Ajax own goal, decided to hook his entire front three. It's uh, only the fifth time he's done it as a Liverpool manager, taking them all off in the same game. So. Right. When were the other uh, four, Duncan? Were they occasions when he was resting them? I mean, th- this seemed to be almost like sending a message to the team. Yeah, the others were, you know, games. It wasn't all at the same time. This was a, a you know, a very pointed triple substitution, I think. You know, that 
I mean, in the old days when you could only have three substitutions, the triple substitution is is a manager getting very cross, um, and that's essentially what it was here. I think. Mm. I don't think it was. I don't think he was cross. I think this was a, a pre-planned move to try and keep his players fresh. The fact he hooked them all in the same minute, um, that to me suggested it was something that they'd settled on beforehand. The fact it was the 60th minute as well. Um, and also I think it showed that you know Liverpool do have other options there and perhaps is a sign that, that Klopp is going to try and turn to his bench a little bit more this season than, than in the last couple of seasons, which he is going to have to do and which all Premier League managers are going to have to do because this is such a unique season. Uh, you know, you're going to need those backup players a lot more than in previous seasons, so it makes sense to give them game time wherever you can. Right, well, coming up for Liverpool are Sheffield United, who are now eight games in the league without a win. Uh, they haven't won a, a away from home, Sheffield United, in the league since February, 1st of February, when they had a 1-0 win away at Palace. Here's a stat, Duncan. You were mentioning numbers before. In the 12 Premier League matches since they won the title, no team has conceded more goals than Liverpool, 25 of them, and that was with Van Dijk fit. So clearly there has been a... I mean, I'm not saying anything new here, but there's been a major issue there. Yeah, it's not like Liverpool have been this amazing defensive team and suddenly Van Dijk's gone and it's all going to fall to pieces. I mean, before the midweek Football League games um, this week, the only teams to concede more goals than Liverpool this season in the league were Oldham and Burton, which is not what you'd expect the reigning league champions uh, position to be in. So obviously Van Dijk's a massive loss, but getting Alisson back is the, is the key thing because Adrian, again, had a couple of moments uh, against Ajax when just you know panicked basically and I think I do feel a bit sorry for him now he knows you can just tell that he he knows how much pressure he's under and he's getting the same that pressure from people like Joe Gomez just sort of you know raising their eyebrows at him and stuff and it must be every game must be weighing pretty heavily on him he brings it on himself with the with the kicking especially because that time where he allowed the the Ajax forward to charge him down he honestly had about 25 seconds on the ball the Ajax player the Ajax player was about 40 meters away when he got it and it's like yeah it's like he he doesn't start to kick before the guy is kind of bearing down on him that would really annoy me if I was Jurgen Klopp obviously not every goalkeeper is Allison. that's fine but if you're going to just boot it long anyway boot it long five seconds after you get it not you know 20. There's also the look on Joe Gomez's face when they had that little sort of tangle in the first half it wasn't just that he was a little bit you know, put out. He looked so annoyed and kind of incredulous that Adrian would would behave in that way. It brought to mind that Kevin De Bruyne, Nicola Otamendi clash from when was it last season? The 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 scream of Nico Y. Mm. Kind of feel there's a lot of Adrian Y. Or well, the Kepper, the Kepper and the Chelsea yeah. twins like Kepper. <laughs> Do yeah. Liverpool not have I don't know Jersey Dudek as a technical advisor in the team that they can include in their Premier League squad and then. No? All right then. Mike Hooper. That's who they need. Okay. Um, Man City, meanwhile, will be kicking off Saturday's action away at West Ham. West Ham's run, another of these teams that have uh, played havoc with their expectations, they beat Wolves, they beat Leicester, and last time out they pulled off an impossible comeback against Spurs. For their next trick, are they going to do Man City at the London Stadium? A Man City side perhaps... uh, Slightly worn out after their Wednesday night antics with Porto. I mean, Man City always beat West Ham. They've beaten them in all nine games since Pep Guardiola became manager. Mm. Um, They've got a particularly good record at London Stadium. 
Um, and they always seem to score lots of goals against them. But as you say, West Ham is so hard to call this season. Uh, and you look at City's absentees, they lost Fernandinho to injury last night. Um, Gabriel Jesus is also still out, as is Nathan Aki, as is Benjamin Mendy. Um, obviously, Aguero's back. De Bruyne and Emerick Laporte are due back in training today, I think, but we don't know whether they're going to be fit. So uh, it's hard to know what sort of state City will be in going into this game. Uh, mm. And I think that the way that... I mean, you know, the big issue that West Ham have, have had sort of traditionally is that you just don't know what you're going to get from them. They feel like such a mishmash. But the way that they beat Wolves, the way that they beat Leicester, they look like a proper counter-attacking team. Like they decided this is the sort of football we're going to play. Um, obviously, that, that game at Spurs was um, was a bit of a shambles, but it kind of showed that, you know, there is a lot of kind of conviction there, the way they came back in. And it's the sort of result, particularly, you know, the nature of the the way they came back with those three late goals and that rocket from Lanzini that, that will give the place a real boost. So, yeah, I mean, you'd ordinarily you'd, you'd back City in this sort of game with your eyes closed. But I, yeah, I wonder whether West Ham will, will fancy it. Mm. I think with West Ham, to me, they're really benefiting from consistency of selection, particularly in midfield and attack. You know, you look at, they've had quite a big squad the last two or three seasons with a lot of attacking options, a lot of wingers, kind of creative players who all seem to kind of flit in and out of the side. Whereas at the moment, it's a pretty solid front three of Mikel Antonio supported by Pablo Fornals and Jared Bowen. And I think the three of them are building up a really nice relationship. Obviously, now we've got Saeed right. Ben Rama coming in and that is going to put the cat amongst the pigeons mm. in in many what, ways, because what kind know, of cat is Saeed Ben Rama? Oh, he's a cool cat, James. A really cool he? cat. He's yeah, a really exciting player. I was. Um, I'm I picturing watched. a cat in like a juggler's outfit on a unicycle. Uh, that does wearing, that's wearing so a cool. white suit. I think he'd wear a white suit as well. So, um, in football terms, though, uh, well, he's a he's a very tricky, very flamboyant attacking midfielder. Can mm. kind of play in from the left. Looks to me like the kind of person who'd probably love to, you know, to be a number ten, have the side built around him. But there's don't see much of that in in English football. Brilliant at Brentford. Um, his kind of parting goal for them was a gorgeous little turn and whipped finish into the corner a couple of weeks ago. Really exciting player. The kind of player I think a lot of neutrals will like to watch. But you know, um, the interesting thing is I don't think he's going to be a guaranteed starter. Certainly not that at the beginning, given the, the front three I just mentioned. So I think he's probably going to have to bide his time. And yeah, my hope is that he doesn't become just another of those West Ham uh, kind of sparky types, Felipe Anderson, Manuel, Lanzini, Yarmolenko, who who kind of light the Premier League up for three or four weeks, then just kind of go on sabbatical for another two years or something. So I'm hoping... He could, well... He could do a Dimitri Payet and be just incredible for a season and a half and then go back to Bradford. Mm. Yeah. In a £15 million move. Felipe mm. Anderson, by the way, who was sat on the bench watching Porto lose to Man City a Wednesday night in the Champions League, now on loan with the Portuguese side from the Hammers. All right. Well, that's an unexpectedly tasty-looking West Ham-Man City clash. Also on Saturday... Hanky's at the ready because it's nostalgia time. Roy Hodgson is going to be going back to Fulham. The club he took to the Europa League final, do you remember, a decade ago, back in simpler times. They got beaten by Atletico Madrid, but it was still the journey, I think. That was their victory. That well, semi-final Juventus against game. Juventus. Yes, yeah. Juventus game tick. But then also the final. David De Gea and Sergio Aguero, I completely forgot this, were both in that Atletico side. 
that won the Europa League at Fulham's expense. But, you know, this for Tony Khan, who, who doesn't remember those days, considers Fulham a yo-yo club. Fulham, you know, they, they walked among European giants back then. Yeah, a time when, you know, Simon Davies was suddenly transformed into some Iniesta-type figure <laughs> strutting his stuff on the European stage. They are, yeah, really, really great run. Very, very memorable. And I think it felt it was one of those runs that even at the time felt so unique. Like, even as it was happening, it, it felt like the kind of thing, well, you know, we're not really going to go through this again Re- anytime Re- soon. So there no, was kind of no, a... no, 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 no. Because it no? was just like Middlesbrough's one from about eight years before, wasn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. No, but for Fulham, I don't mean no team oh, right, will yeah. ever do it again. But... Yeah, and Middlesbrough never thrashed Juventus. Yeah, they did yeah, roll. Massimo Macaroni produced 56 comebacks in that, in that run. <laughs> well, Fulham so. haven't repeated that yet, but there's the seeds of something pretty interesting uh, brewing at, at Craven Cottage right now. Alexander Mitrovic and company. What, what do you reckon on their chances of uh, of making it an unhappy return for Roy Hodgson this weekend? And they've looked better, Fulham, after their pretty awful um, start to the season. Lost their first four matches, but the fourth game of that was uh, 1-0 at Wolves. At Scott Parker shuffled things up at the back and, and they looked a bit more solid. And then last time out... Um, drawing uh, 1-1 away at Sheffield United would have got the win were it not for uh, a slightly fortunate late penalty that Mitrovic gave away having earlier ballooned a penalty of his own over the bar that Billy Sharp scored and Scott Parker's been been pretty positive uh, after the last couple of matches despite the fact Fulham are still waiting for that first win he feels like they're moving in the right direction Um, and yeah Palace pretty up and down as ever, don't create many chances. Um, Roy Hodgson was quite critical of the fact that they didn't build on the um, the opener they got uh, against Brighton last time out, and obviously ended up conceding that that late leveller. So yeah, I think I think Fulham will feel that they're moving in the right direction. But if if they don't if they don't win this, um, or if they don't start picking up wins soon, then perhaps that that sense that something is starting to happen will um, will start to dissolve. Well, just to back up the uh, the Palace not having many shots, thing they've had thirty two this season, which is only eleven only eleven more than Mitrovic has had on his own. So, um, yeah, I think Fulham they're on this awful run of eleven London derbies, top flight London derby defeats in a row, which is an all time record. But I think if they're going to end that run, this is the game that they're going to do it in. Bring back the Michael Jackson statue and the cheese while you're at it. Next up, anyway, on this Totally Football Show. We're going to be looking at Friday's action. Woo. The Totally Football Shows and The Athletic are delighted to be supporting Football Aid for the months of October and November. Bid now at footballaid.com to get your hands on some incredible football memorabilia, including signed shirts from Steven Gerrard, Gianluca Vialli, Gareth Bale and even Peter Crouch's boots. Find out more, get bidding and support the cause at footballaid.com. Listener, by my calendar, Friday is the 23rd of October. On this day, hello, Bram Poole and the Tremolos with the number one sound back in 1963, Do You Love Me? On this day in 1963, 23rd of October, 100,000 spectators packed into Wembley Stadium to see England celebrate the centenary of the Football Association with an exhibition match against the rest of the world team. Woof. Who was in the rest of the world team? Wow. Alfredo Di Stefano was there, Eusebio, French Pushkas, 
And who was in goal? Lev Yashin. Crikey. Needless to say, England won 2-1. Jimmy Greaves and Terry Payne were the English scorers of English goals. And scoring for the visitors, the almost English, Ooh. Dennis Law. They should bring games like that back. That's, that's the main problem with modern football. Forget right. all the rest of it, the money and the corruption and whatever. It's not having occasional exhibition matches right. involving the biggest names in the world. I'd forgotten that I went to the 1987 Football League v Rest of the World game. Maradona played in that one. So I suddenly realised a few months ago that I'd seen Maradona play live. And I, it was I a memorable it. performance. I, I think and yeah, these games are obviously terrific. I also wish, and it's, it's not my idea by any means, that they would have a rest of the world team in major tournaments like World Cup. For every, for every nation who, who can't qualify, any mm. players that want can be selected for a... Scotland. Well, you say that, Duncan, but anyway, that, that would be lovely. Kind of barbarians, but for football. Exactly, exactly that. They do it in, 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 in other sports, ice hockey, which is so far ahead of the game in, in many ways. But if you're listening, football authorities, uh, Arsene Wenger perhaps, that's our shout. Now, uh, anyway, on this 23rd of October 2020, Aston Villa... They're going to be taking on Leeds. Villa, one of only two sides in Europe's top five divisions with a 100% start to the season there. One point off the top of the Premier League table and so far looking good value for it. It's all a far cry from where we thought they'd be when the campaign began. So before it all implodes in a Blackpool-esque hubris-tinged collapse, let's salute the villains with Dan Bardell from the 1874 podcast. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. How long do you give this? I don't know, you know, I'm feeling I'm feeling really good. It's an unusual feeling as a Villa fan to be carrying around this optimism on, on a daily basis. But you look at our next two games being at home and I think that there's no reason why we can't get six points from the next two games. And, and, and then you're looking at, at 18 points and you're halfway nearly to that 40-point mark that is where, realistically, we all want to get. And, and then you take it from there. I mean, it took us three months to get 12 points last season and, and we're there already after four games. So... I think we've got a good side. We've got got a good setup at the moment, and I'm really pleased with how things are going. Mm. Well, you're dangerous up top and unlikely to see goals at the back, rather than the other way around, which it was last season. Yeah, it's it's a complete turnaround, isn't it? I mean, we, we, before we went into the the lockdown, we were awful defensively. That that four nil game at Leicester, where they absolutely annihilated us before football went into that that enforced break, was some of the worst defending I've ever seen. And we made steady progress after after the break and as as we got to the end of last season and we obviously stayed up, our defence was very good and we, we've carried that on into this season and, and you look around at the, the big boys at the moment, a lot of them can't defend and that's one thing that Villa are doing really well and w- when you carry the threat that we've got up top now, if we're fortunate with injuries and we can keep that side fit, I see no reason why we can't push towards the top eight. Is this John Terry's doing? I think it's 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 a bit of everything. I mean, the, the fans were very quick to ask what John Terry was doing last season when we were defending badly. So I think it's only fair to, to give him praise. I mean, I, I understand from my athletic colleague, Greg Evans' article that he's, he's released today that John Terry does a lot of video analysis with the team and he's very well thought of and he's very good at doing that. So John Terry will be playing his part for sure. But I think it's a real collective effort and I think that's the big thing about Villa at the moment. I think everyone is singing from the same hymn sheet. There's there's a tight-knit group there. That there is that collective spirit. Everyone's doing their job to a high standard. It's just a shame the fans can't be in the ground to see it. Mm. All right, well, whatever happens from now on in, you'll always have... That 7-2 against Liverpool a couple of weeks ago. How was that lived round your way? 
absolute madness. I don't, I don't think that that's sunk in. I, I actually fancied us to, to cause them issues. I, I'm not for one minute going to say that I, I thought we were going to win 7-2. I, I mean, I thought we'd, we'd cause them problems and perhaps get a point and give them a good game. But we just took, took them to pieces and... People were going on about Liverpool being bad that day, and yes, they were, and the high line they were playing. But you know what? They've been playing that high line for a long, long time, and it's gone very well for them. Villa just exposed them, that they worked hard, and, and, and on the day, everything went well for Villa. A few things went in our favour with deflections, but we outplayed them, and it could have been a lot more. It was just a, a special, special day. And My dad's been going down to Villa for, for 60 years, and he said he's never seen anything like it, and that's, that's one that will stand out to him in his memory for the rest of his life. So I think that probably tells you how much of a, a special occasion that was. Yeah, indeed so. Well, it leads this weekend. A win here would give you your best ever start in the top flight. It's the first time that these two teams have met Leeds and Villa since another pretty memorable match at Ellen Road in the Championship 18 months ago Yeah, when Leeds did a dirty and then Bielsa stepped in and let you guys go down the other end of the score. Yeah, it was a, a funny day. I mean, first of all, it, it's good to see Villa and Leeds being a Premier League game again because it, it, it's been a long time since both teams were in the Premier League at, at the same time. I, I've got a lot of respect for Bielsa. I think... I think what he's done there, he's done really well. I think the main thing being that he's improved players that were already there and I always think that's a sign of of a good manager. It's probably going to be an explosive game because because since then there has been that little bit of rivalry. Leeds fans don't seem to like Villa on social media. They don't seem to like Jack Grealish. I mean, most opposition fans don't seem to like Jack Grealish, to be fair, which again, that's a sign of a very good player. And it'll, it'll be a really good game, but I think... Leeds are obviously getting a lot of praise for what they've done early on in the season. I think what, what we're doing isn't getting enough praise in the mainstream media. And I think I think Dean Smith deserves a massive amount of credit for the way he's turned Villa around. Brilliant. All right, well, you could be top of the league come Friday. We shall see. Dan Bardell, thank you very much for joining us. Anytime. Dan Bardell. You can catch the latest episode of the 1874 podcast, which uh, dropped on Tuesday. So that's nice. Uh, do you remember that uh, that game at Ellen Road? The team stopped for an injury, or almost did, and the Leeds went, no, hang on, we'll, we'll play on. And they scored, and then there was kind of skirmishes. John Terry told Bielsa to shush on the sidelines. El Ghazi picked up a red. And uh, then Bielsa said, no, this is not how we do it. And he told his players to just stand by while while Villa swept down the other end and, and, and equalised. Extraordinary moments. Remarkable. And wasn't it, was it Pontus Janssen who was the one Leeds player mm. who was like, no, <laughs> didn't get not on my watch. Everyone else just stood back and let Villa stroll through and he was like, no, I'm not letting this, and sort of tried to nick the ball off Villa. But yeah, a, a extraordinary moment. Just on Dan's point that, you know, a couple more wins and they'll, they'll be heading towards safety. They were already safe. No team that's ever won their opening four games in top flight history has ever been relegated. So Villa, you know... Book the holidays now. Mm, yeah. Nice. All right. Well, Friday night, Villa against Leeds. Next up, we'll be talking about the tabletoppers, Everton, their clash with Saints, and the other stuff that's happening on Sunday. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Sunday. It's Southampton Everton. It's also Wolves Newcastle. And yes, it's Arsenal Leicester. What you fancy talking about here, guys? Uh, Southampton Everton. Michael Cox on Sunday's pod articulating his view that James Rodriguez is the player of the season so far. Anybody want to disagree? I mean, he's obviously up there, isn't he? 
Um, mm. Might throw Harry Kane into into the uh, Harry Kane, yeah, into, into the hat. Mm. I think he, I think he's the most aesthetically pleasing player in the Premier League. In that, literally everything he does, even very simple things, he does it with just some weird artistic flourish, like a you know a, a painter flicking his brush away at the end of a, a stroke. Just like mm. five yard pass, he can make it look uh, magnificent. So I think that is very much in his favour. I prefer Dan Byrne. But um, on this game, what's the date on Sunday? Um, the 25th of October. Thanks. What happened last year on the 25th of October? Southampton played at home to Leicester and lost 9 0. Oh, my word. Was that the 25th of October? Yeah. I have that down as being like Christmas time. No. It was. Uh, so this is the, exactly one year. And I think. I know Southampton fans really hate everyone mentioning the 9 0. So I think this is the last time. I think once we've gone past a year. Let's expunge it from all chats. So, okay. There we go. I, I find that really funny how they're like, oh, do, do not talk about the 9 0. We're so much more than 9 0. It's an era defining result, but right. also in a good way for them because, you know, it sparked them into life. It's Exactly. It's, uh, yeah, it would be a dereliction of duty not to mention it when it is relevant. It's probably not relevant. It was relevant a circuit now. breaker. Yeah. Circuit Why do we breaker. fall so we can get back up again, etc.? Wolves are taking on Newcastle. Wolves 1-0 winners at Leeds on Monday night. They've only scored five goals in their five games so far. They may find it easier to add to that tally this weekend against Newcastle's eye that's conceding 17 shots a game. That's that's not quite a record, but very nearly. Is that right, Duncan? Yeah, it's not quite a record. I mean, at this point last season, Arsenal were conceding more shots per game than this under under Unai Emery, more than the, the Derby team in 07-08 were. Um, but yeah, it's not it's not ideal. One thing I'd say about Wolves is that they have won each of their last two games 1-0 um, and they never really score that many goals. Since they've come up to the Premier League, their their biggest win has been 3-0 um, and when you think about how many goals Raul Jimenez scores and how dangerous players like Adama Traore and um, Pedro Neto and Daniel Padenza are, um, you, you might have thought they'd, they'd put more teams to the sword but there is... I think one of Wolves' great strengths is their game management. I think they're a team who manage to um, impose themselves in matches even when they don't have the ball. And they very rarely look to absolutely steamroller teams. And after um, that very surprising 4-0 defeat at West Ham, I think what we've seen in the two subsequent games, the 1-0 against Fulham and the 1-0 at Leeds, is, is Wolves getting back to what they've done so well over the last couple of seasons, which is taking the sting out of the game, getting themselves in front, protecting the clean sheet. I thought the way that they sort of rode the storm against Leeds was impressive because we know how dangerous Leeds can be, how they how they propose things that, that other teams aren't really used to having to deal with. But I, I think it's I think it's a good sign that Wolves have kind of got back to that kind of stability. Um, and as you say, Newcastle pretty flaky defensively. So um, yeah, you, you'd certainly back the home one in this one. Although in this craziest of season, who well, exactly. knows? Well, who knows, exactly. Who knows? I, I was referencing Arsenal's defensive record. Duncan, you were saying what kind of position they were in this time last year. Right now, they've got the second best defence in the Premier League after Aston Villas, which is pretty surprising given that the Gunners have been to Anfield and the Etihad this weekend, 7.15 on Sunday. It is PPV. Arsenal will be taking on Leicester, who've lost their last two matches after winning their first three. Oh, Leicester... Do you know when their last win away at Arsenal was, Jack? I don't, but I hope you're going to tell me. I am. It was September 1973, before any of us were at least seven years old. Incredible. <laughs> Peter Shilton was in goal. Mike Stringfellow scored the second in a 2-0 win. Donny Osmond was number one. 
Stop that, Charlie. Okay. Uh, only Wayne Rooney and Robbie Fowler have scored more Premier League goals against Arsenal than Jamie Vardy. He's got 10. I think his his return will be critical to their chances, obviously. Not not just because of that record, but because of how how toothless they looked against Villa without him. I mean, Kelechi Inacho is is a very frustrating player, I find. He's obviously technically gifted. He's got a fantastic shot on him, but he's just doesn't quite manage to put together a performance over 90 minutes. And I think it's pretty telling that he was holed off for a, the lesser spotted Islam Slimani, who's kind of hadn't played for them for 18 months or so and looked pretty terrible himself in those 20 minutes. So yeah, Leicester a funny one. I can't quite get to grips with them at the moment. I think they're, they're still waiting for a bit of uh, consistency of selection, get, you know, Madison back in on a more regular basis, obviously defensive injuries as well. So I, I would expect them to, to pick up after this little lull, but may not be this weekend. Okay. Well, we'll report on what happens in that game, having splashed out for it, uh, in uh, Sunday night's Toady Football Show, which will be available to you early Monday morning, in which we'll probably also have a nod towards the two games that will be coming up on Monday night, which are Brighton, West Brom, Burnley, Spurs. I uh, just wanted to ask, uh, on the subject of Brighton, West Brom, Jack, I was surprised to learn that Brighton's Alexis McAllister, who scored his first Premier League goal at Palace, last time out, is actually Argentine. He's called Alexis McAllister. I was not expecting that. Also, isn't it, isn't it Mac Space Alistair as well? Oh, is it? Mm. Previously, Josh King had been my go-to example of a player you thought was from British Isles, but actually certainly wasn't. But I think Alexis McAllister has probably taken it. Also Tom Tribal of Blackburn Rovers, who sounds British, actually German. Ashley Barnes, who's the most Austrian man in the history of Austria, um, <laughs> but is Austrian, yeah. Philip Billing is another one. I was convinced Billing was a was a Huddersfield Town youth team graduate. Yeah. It turns out he's actually from Denmark. That's a very good one. Uh, McAllister's got two brothers who are also professional footballers. So the, the family is of Irish and Scottish descent, but his two brothers are called Francis and Kevin. So it's obviously... A, right. They sound like Brazilian midfielders. I mean, yeah, obviously Brazil has got countless players named after, you know, pre-war British names. My favourite couple, though, are the, are the ones that add a little old school English name to a Brazilian name. So there's two. There's Fernando Bob, which I love. And then there's, <laughs> and there's also Pedro Ken. Pedro <laughs> Ken might be my favourite one, yeah. Mm. Alison, who obviously has an unusual name for a, a, a male player, but he's... His brother's also... What's his brother called? Is it? It's not Daphne, is it? What is it's it? Muriel. Muriel. Right. Interesting. I mean, you know, different approaches in different parts of the world to names. I'm sure our names sound just as silly to them. In a moment or two, we'll be doing some quality rubbernecking on the crisis at Real Madrid with our friend Alvaro Romeo, ahead of the Clasico, of course, this weekend. Before that, though, let's get some odds from Lee Price. Hello, listeners. Hope you're well. Me? Oh, thanks for asking. A bit of a sore back, actually, and a bit tired. That's probably all the numbers making my head spin. The football will soon soothe it, though. And this weekend's big game, probably, is United versus Chelsea. In an exciting preview of what the European Premier League might offer us, we make Manchester United the favourites, despite what happened last time they played at home at 7-5. to five. Although, if I'm honest, I'm only really interested in whether Petr Cech makes the bench. The Friday night game is a feel of what the European Premier League might have looked like in the 80s, with Villa favourites to beat Leeds. 
The biggest outsiders of the weekend, meanwhile, are Sheffield United, who are 10-1 to to beat poor, sweet Liverpool, who have never injured another team's player. Horrible, horrible Everton are favourites to win at Southampton and stay top. And that'd be funny. And finally, Tottenham will be smart and they didn't get the call-up to the European League of Nobeds, but at least they've got the money slot on Monday Night Football. They're once again odds-on to win, although last time they played a team in Claret, that didn't work out so well, did it? Have a lovely weekend, guys. All the best. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. All right. Last Saturday, Real Madrid were defeated for the first time ever by newly promoted Cadiz. Midweek, then, they faced a Shakhtar Donetsk side that had turned up with the kids. And they lost to them as well. Next up, this Saturday... They're only up against Barcelona in the Clasico. Wow. Let's hear from Alvaro Romeo on what exactly is going on in Madrid and what the prospects are this weekend. Alvaro, thanks for joining us. Hello, James. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Well, Thursday morning after the Shakhtar defeat, Marca with the headline, Cada dia peor. Every day it gets worse, which is certainly a headline for 2020. What's the reaction been in general and who's the finger of blame been pointing at? Well, uh, following with uh, Marca, uh, there was a poll in the newspaper. Who would you blame for that? Said the question. And a big majority of the internet online voters blamed the players rather than Zidane. I believe that Zidane had a 27% of the blame uh, and the rest was for the players. So I think that, uh, you know, Zinedine Zidane is always going to, is going to be an adored figure at Madrid, even though the fans they came to the conclusion that maybe he's not as perfect as he, as he looked like when Real Madrid won three Champions League in a row. And uh, the result was awful for Real Madrid for so many reasons, because that group is probably the toughest in the Champions League, as I said on Monday in the Total Football Show, uh, because also some of the players, they didn't look up to the level, up to the challenge. And also because Zinedine Zidane uh, managed to find uh, a way to make Real Madrid solid between July and August, uh, Real Madrid won the, the league thanks to that. But uh, as it stands, uh, Real Madrid is no longer that team. Mm, taken apart in the first half, three goals from the marauding Ukrainians. No Sergio Ramos in this game. And it, it's interesting how, once again, that proved to be key. Also Zidane's decision to start with Benzema on the bench, uh, presumably resting him for the weekend. Yeah, but at the same time, it doesn't make a lot of sense because uh, we all know that that game or that group is going to be difficult. Uh, and of course, Shakhtar Donetsk uh, got to Valdebebas with uh, many players in the sidelines for obvious reasons. But still, you know, if you're going to start in the Champions League and your Champions League campaign, you know that you have to do things well. And uh, the best way of doing the things well is playing your, your best players. And I believe that Zinedine Zidane was a little bit complacent as well. He rotates the squad, which is good because every player he feels that he's part of it. And every player feels that they, they may have a chance anytime. But at the same time, there is a moment when the 11 best players have to be there. And this is something that Zidane sometimes forgets. And it happened again at the Etihad uh, in the Champions League last 16, when Rodrigo played. And obviously, Rodrigo is not better, better than, than Vinicius. Uh, it happened uh, as well yesterday when Luka Jovic played there. And Luka Jovic said, 
let's face it, I mean, let's take off our masks again. I mean, the, the player that uh, uh, played against uh, uh, with Eintracht Frankfurt a year ago is, is not the player that plays for Real Madrid now. I mean, Luka Jovic has proven himself like a calamitous signing for Real Madrid, and it's time to say that. And uh, the thing with Real Madrid is that I think that there is a room for improvement for them because Eden Hazard will come back. Uh, Marco Asensio can only get better after his knee injury, and Zinedine uh, Zidane can also play with four midfielders, which make the team... Uh, much more solid. But it's not true that uh, Real Madrid has to do a heavy investment because they haven't done it. Real Madrid has done it already. Since Cristiano Ronaldo departed in 2018, Real Madrid has spent over 400 million in players that uh, they haven't improved the team dramatically. Vinicius, Militao, Rodrigo, and many more. Uh, also Odrio Zola, also Ferlán Mendy, many players that they have made Real Madrid a team mm. capable of winning the league in a bad season of Barcelona and Atletico but incapable of uh, being competitive in the Champions League. And this is something that they will have to address. I know that the pandemic has hit their finances, but still uh, hasn't hit the, their finances as bad as uh, has hit Barcelona and Atletico de Madrid. And probably next summer they will go for a big signing. But uh, when you see a performance like that from Real Madrid, you tend to think that they need more than one expensive signing because otherwise they won't be the power force they were at the beginning of uh, last decade. Well, by the sound of it, they've had plenty of those. Though uh, Saturday at three o'clock, they're going to be at the camp now, taking on Barcelona, a Barcelona team who, by contrast, won their Champions League game five-one midweek and seem to be resembling something like the Barcelona we used to love so much. What happens to Zidane, who tends to have a shaky patch every autumn? What happens to Zidane and Real Madrid if they blow the Clasico as well? Well, uh, it's always difficult to address or to make a forecast about Zidane's future because uh, there is a personal relationship that goes beyond the uh, professional between Florentino Pérez and Zinedine Zidane. I remember that Julian Lopetegui was sacked right after Barcelona beat Real Madrid 5-1 in El Clásico, but I think that Zidane may have a little bit more of... Uh, how to put it, uh, a little bit more of a trust from the from mm. the board of Florentino Perez because he has done so great. And, uh, you know, uh, because uh, at the same time, he won the league two months ago. But uh, Real Madrid, I think that gets to this game in, in a very bad form, obviously. And uh, Barcelona may have the chance to turn the things around a little bit. Last season, Barcelona looked lethargic. This season, they are not great, but at least they look that they've got some uh, um, vitality in there. And... Uh, the question for me is whether Ronald Koeman will spot and detect as well the vulnerabilities of Real Madrid. If Ronald Koeman goes for it, and that's still to be seen because he has been only six weeks in charge, I think Real Madrid is going to be in trouble, especially because Sergio Ramos may be out for the game as well because he is not exactly perfect from his knee injury. All right then, Alvaro. Well, next Tuesday, our Totally Football Show European edition will, of course, be looking back on what happens Saturday in Catalonia. Many thanks for joining us for now. That's been brilliant stuff. Thank you. Take care, James. Bye-bye. Alvaro Romeo, always lovely to hear him. Super stuff. Jack, uh, Duncan and Tom, that brings us to the end of today's Totally Football Show. Any final thoughts before we head off into the ether? Stay safe, everyone. Yeah, that's... That's probably the most important message of all. Many thanks then, guys, for being with us today. Listener, thank you for making this all possible. We'll be back Monday morning early with our reaction to the weekend. I do hope you join us then. For now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. 
check out all of The Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on The Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Muddy Knees Media.